there are quite a few LGBTQ people in the cathedral community and I hope and pray that we will be able to be showing a different way of being a Christian community which is more inclusive. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. You're listening to the bells ringing at the historic landmark of Bristol Cathedral. And today's guest is very much connected to it. According to the most recent census, there's been a drop of 50% in the UK for people that call themselves Christians. Is it still relevant today? Why is it falling so much? And how can Christianity survive in a multi-faith society? In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talked to Reverend Phil Knott, who was recently appointed city chaplain on a six-month volunteer role at Bristol Cathedral, specifically working with diverse communities of Bristol. He's somebody who is an environmental activist. His Twitter biog has an LGBT plus flag and a trans flag. He's somebody who fiercely opposes the culture wars and is anti-fundamentalist. So, how does that square with his role as an ordained vicar at arguably the most elitist institution in religion, the Church of England? So we talked to him about a number of things, his personal faith, the role that church plays in politics, diversity, connecting to different organisations and to different groups in the city, and King Charles, when you're a vicar, you have to swear allegiance to the crown. So will he be watching the coronation this weekend? I won't be. I'll be camping. Enjoy. Hey, Phil. Hello. Thank you for coming on. You've got a lot of fingers in different pies. You've been involved in, in a lot of stuff. You've done work over in Eastern, where I'm from. You've also done a lot of work in South Bristol in Norwest. I've done my research on you, and and you're obviously you know you're you're ordained reverend ordained what what's the correct terminology? Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm I'm a, I'm a priest in the Church of England, and this is the 25th year since I started doing that. So yeah, 25 years. Wow. And you've moved around a bit, haven't you? You've been in other cities. Then you were originally. I, I tend to specialise. Yeah, I tend to specialise in big cities. So I've yeah. been in London, Birmingham, Nottingham. Yeah. So when did you come to Bristol, Phil? Well, so we we first came in 2006. That would be first time I came to work here. But my yeah. grandparents, well, my parents were married here. My grandfather worked here, both sides, both grandparents. One worked in city council. Oh, one right. worked for, in Filton for a BAC. So you're from Bristol, but then you you grew up in, in, in London. So you were family were from Bristol originally, and then they moved. Well, you moved. Yeah, so yeah. Bristolian family who, then my dad works for Barclays Bank, or he worked for Barclays Bank and then was yeah. taken off to Oxford where I was born and then around the place. Uh, and I've done my research. You're obviously, as a as an ordained reverend, a follower of Jesus, but you're also an avid follower of Brentford Football Club. I am. Do, do you do you worship Ivan Tony with the same enthusiasm as you would uh, Christ? Not quite, but, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a good lad. We're, yeah. we're going to have to find out what's been going on with the uh, with the betting. But uh, Oh, yeah, of I, course. I forgot that. Yeah, good point. Yeah. But he's, um, you know, the football club has been a thing that me and my dad do. My dad's not a man of faith, so we we meet up at the football. And for many years, it's been following them in the lower league. 
then there was a few years when all it was was coming going down to Ashton Gate and seeing them thrash Bristol City, and then, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then now the Premier League. So well, I remember. I'm a Rovers fan. I remember them. I remember Brentford coming quite regularly when I was sort of growing up to Rovers, and all of a sudden now. You know, thrust into the Premier League, great manager and Thomas Frank playing great football. I feel a bit envious, really, looking from a Bristol perspective. That why well, you should Brentford have a bloody Premier League club and not what either of the Bristol clubs? Well, I mean, as as someone who loves this city, I would love to see us have a Premier League club. I'd be a bit conflicted in my loyalties. My grandfather had a uh, trial for Rovers, and okay. my uncle was an avid Bristol City fan when he was in Bristol. So, yeah. But I would love us to have a Bristol uh, Bristol yes. representation. So you don't need one way or the other, then. You no, I try and not. I particularly now with my new role, I'm 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 for both both teams and yeah. and all the all the good stuff that happens in the city. Yeah, you have to be really, don't you? If you're because your new role is is connected to Bristol Cathedral, isn't it? In a, yeah, it's like a six month role. It's, yeah, it's a it's it's a work placement to see how how much I can contribute to to their agenda and see where we go from there. And it's particularly around working with diverse communities in Bristol. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So 10 years in Eastern, 2006, 2016, I was quite well connected to many of the diverse communities. And my role will be to both re-engage with those people, but also to work with other groups that Bristol Cathedral really wants to engage with, but has found difficult. So, for instance, South Bristol, where I was until very recently, do they even know they've got a cathedral and do they want to talk to us? And that, that That's interesting then, because sort of similar to myself a bit, but before I was in journalism, I worked in community development. And I there aren't many people that have worked in South Bristol and in a, in a city. It tends to be one or the other. So it's interesting to sort of talk to you from that sort of perspective, because in this sort of age of culture wars and kind of stuff like that, I think that I've I've long tried to encourage groups of young people and and community workers to connect more between areas like Noel West and Hartcliffe to Eastern and, and, and St. Paul's and, and actually to find those sort of positions of solidarity, but also positions of, of similarity of experience, I think. Is, is that something that you find yourself that actually, you know, give or take the obvious issues to do with, you know, racism, but the actual day-to-day experiences of people living in both those communities are quite similar? That they are similar. They're similar but different. For instance, in South Bristol, there is a sense that everybody over there in the north is is affluent. And when I remind them, that, reminded them that the parish that I came from was as deprived as a place like Noel West, then it, it took some persuading. But uh, being on the edge of the city, obviously historically, South Bristol isn't even in the city, and it kind of looks over at the city, but often doesn't engage with with the central bits of the city and with its institutions. And that's kind of what I'm going to be trying to see, whether there's any engagement that we can do as as kind of um, ecclesiastical power brokers, I think, yeah, we are yeah. in the, where we are in in as a cathedral in right in the heart of the city. Can and we'll we... get on a little bit. Well, I want to get on a bit, a bit later in terms of Bristol Cathedral itself and also the, the sort of church's role in Bristol. But I want to sort of rail back, if I can, a little bit, a bit, a bit about yeah. to you yourself. You're somebody, and I've looked at your Twitter feed, that, you know, you're quite quite interested and somebody puts themselves forward on in a number of sort of social justice ways. Obviously, you've been commenting on sort of climate justice, 
Yeah. Uh, obviously, poverty would be something that interesting. You know, even like reparations, and and you've talked yeah. about the cathedrals links to to the British Empire, and 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 you know, even in your your biog, you, you have a, a LGBT flag, a trans flag. So, you know, sometimes there are stereotypes, rightly or wrongly, or people have a certain perception of what somebody, a man of the cloth, would be. And and my sense is that you know you're, it's hard to sort of put you into a, a kind of like box really you're kind of moving around in different places and different spaces yeah i i think um that's come through my life experience but also a, a sense that my christianity is very much one of active engagement socially and once you get actively engaged socially you then start meeting people who are on the edges of society and my understanding of the scriptures is that that's something that that God has a particular concern for. So yeah. I've kind of got used to engaging with those communities. And then there's some personal stuff. One of the members of my family is a trans person. And so the personal, the political, the faith, it all kind of comes together. You're in quite an unusual position then in the church itself. Would you be seen as a bit of an outrider? Yeah, people don't quite know what box to put me in. And particularly in this city, there's a few boxes that people want to put you in. But I say that I'm for I'm for Jesus and the city. And I don't want to be seen to be in, in a box that, that is man-made, perhaps. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will drill into that. What is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? What do, yeah. what perceptions, what stereotypes and, and, and stuff like that, I think is important. But I'm also quite keen to know your own pathway to God. You know, how did you... Wow. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, my pathway to God. Well, I mean, I think there's a sense that for me, God is, God is, God is around. But my pathway to a, to an active Christian faith kind of meanders through very committed Christian grandparents well, in this city, actually, and mm-hmm. other places, and a bit of uh, public school, high church Anglicanism. So that means that I'm quite comfortable in the cathedral setting. But my kind of personal faith journey really started when I met some Christian young people who were really friendly. So I also, you might see in the biog, disabled, have dyspraxia, which is a developmental coordination and other kind of condition, which meant that school was difficult for me and I was quite badly bullied. And so meeting this group of people who accepted me as I was and then told me that they did that because they were Christians was was part of the the way. How old were you then, faith. Phil? How old were you? Sixteen, I was. Yeah, sixteen. Okay. So I I'd, I'd kind of been on the edge of church, been on the edge of faith. Would these have been more evangelists? Yeah, they were more evangelical. Yep, yeah. certainly they would be within those kind of frame frameworks. That would be their their church tradition. But they were just young people. I, I was in a in a in a in a sixth form college that wasn't fee-paying, it was just a, a regular one in Sussex, and we had a large group of Christians who uh, were quite active in doing outreach. Okay, so your faith would have developed from that. So would you, would you have been somebody who went to an evangelist church? Yeah, well, yourself? so I mean, yeah. I, went to an, I went to an Anglican church, but the Anglican church is a broad church. <laughs> so yeah, we yeah, have all yeah. flavours of Christianity with it. It, was, it would have been what we would describe as an evangelical Anglican church. Yes, and I didn't people even know listening that, are familiar, that would be yeah. uh, what, you know, people would be a bit more lively and a bit of worship music and... Uh, yep, that yeah, that kind of stuff. Speaking, and, also, um, and kind of a little bit more of a, 
I guess, sort of more committed, like a younger kind of crowd. And yeah, we yeah. had a, we had a, we had a very young crowd. We had we had a hundred pe- young people out of a thousand people in the church. I mean, it was a big church, and yeah, a hundred young people, very committed, twice weekly, small groups, and. Yeah, and then they took me to a place called Greenbelt, which uh, yeah, has been described yeah. as the Christian Glastonbury. But it is a place where Christianity and activism very much meet. And so that broadened my faith because the church I was beginning to grow up in was very much a personal, it was a personal thing. But this gave me a huge vista for both local activism, national activism and international activism. They partner with Christian Aid and other organisations, and so it opened my mind and my heart to a to a bigger view of both God and people. Your role at Bristol Cathedral would be, you know, considered a high church, very much of the of the Christian Church of England establishment. Yeah, you know, Greenbelt is a bit more kind of left of centre, isn't it? And as you say, you know, protest movements, younger people, I guess. People that would be more less theologians, more people. Well, no, I think you'll find. I think no? these days at Greenbelt, you'll find because quite a lot of us are now who would have started there. I mean, I I went to my first Greenbelt in the eighties, but it started in the seventies, and quite a lot of the people who grew up at Greenbelt, you'll now find the canons of cathedrals. That's, I, why is that, I, that's I, interesting. That yeah, I'm is that not just like the hippies in this in, 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 in sort of Woodstock and Glastonbury from the late sixties are now? dot-com millionaires. Is that just what happens when you get older? You, you tend to sort well, of find the middle ground I, I a bit more? I hope some of them have retained some of the activism. That, and so our own canon missioner at the cathedral, John, Canon Johnny Parkin, is a regular green belter. I okay. don't know about the dean. I haven't asked her. But there are quite a few people who would go to Greenbelt. And yeah. we've all grown up together. But And also the, the, the Greenbelt Festival has been on a, on a journey of being more inclusive to LGBT people. And so a lot of us have been on a, on, a, on a kind of journey together in, in many ways. That's interesting. That's interesting. But obviously the, the, the wider point about the amount of people in the country, the UK population that are Christians is, and I'm particularly members of, of the Church of England, is significantly decreasing. I've got some stats here. The recent census showed that there was a drop by 50% of the UK population for the first time. That That is true, but also... Some of the more evangelist churches are, are, are rising, aren't they? So that's a- so there. There is there is growth. I mean, I don't think I would say that growth is is just in one part of the church. Certainly, our black and minority ethnic brothers and sisters churches are growing within this city, and the more evangelical expressions are very good at telling us when they grow. But our own cathedral congregation is a very interesting, eclectic group of people, and we would seek to grow that as well. So I think there is a there's a narrative that says only evangelicals want to grow the church. We want to grow, we yeah. want to open our welcome to everybody, but we are saying that there's more than just bums on seats. Why do you think church attendance has declined so much if, if, within High Church of England churches across the UK? because people haven't gone to Sunday schools. And one of my statistics that I was had given to me at Theological College, which is a bit out of date now because I went in the last century, just about, is that in 1901, 50% of people went to Sunday school. And in 20, 2001, it was something like 1%. So there's this massive decrease in people's connection with the church. Yeah. And we were, we were kind of, as in Church of England, often relied on people growing into faith. I had a little bit of that, so I had a background 
of committed people and a bit of Sunday school, which helped me to understand faith when I came to it as a teenager. But a lot of people haven't got the grammar anymore. So there's that. And, and then there is... I'm from, just jumping on like that. So, you to, so yeah. in order to become a, a, a committed Christian or, or a guest of any faith, you have to have had some education or some, some people, some critics would say indoctrination from a young <laughs> age. Yeah. My parents were definitely not indoctrinating me. They were like, this is what... This is the path that some people in your family have done. We, we did it very, very light touch, Christmas and Easter and yeah. Sunday. We, we said, But that's uh, certainly been some Sunday people's month. experience of, of, of church. And sometimes, you know, that can have, yeah, you know, a positive effect, like somebody returning to faith like yourself. Yeah. Other people can be completely put off by, you know, go full atheist or others look for answers in maybe more esoteric kind of paths. But I guess what my, my question is more that, you know, in order to, kind of step into a religion or in order to as you said to maintain some kind of growth it has to be from a young age statistics would say that that helps but we do see people who have conversion experiences in their teens 20s 30s 40s but it's less and then when those people are if they're coming in completely fresh then we have to give and often offer adult kind of Sunday school type discipleship experiences where people can learn about the faith that they've found their way into for lots of different reasons. Yeah, yeah, okay. With, you know, your position socially, you, we've sort of outlined that at the beginning about you're somebody in your family that's a, in the trans community, uh, being involved in social justice, you know, you've, you've told us a bit about the kind of things you, you, you're involved in your work, but also how you came to, to the faith. How do you square that with some of the attitudes in church around sexuality or some of the attitudes even around, I guess, the role of, of women or even around, I don't know, attitudes towards other faiths? Well, I think I have to recognise that we're all on a journey and I've been on a journey of understanding and and theology and personal experience in, in my attitudes to some people. And so I think we can allow people to the ability to develop. I think the church has got some long-term issues. I, I I have Methodists in my family. And so when, for instance, we talk about the enslavement of African people and the church's involvement in that, my Methodist family members will remind me that they're on the right side of history, that they campaigned vigorously in this city against slavery. Yeah. And that John Wesley, who himself was an Anglican, wasn't allowed to preach in our cathedral. So there is, there's more than one voice. And for instance, today, I find that one of my friends who... Uh, Mandy, who leads the new room in Bristol, has just done one of their first gay weddings. Very inclusive, very progressive congregation meeting there at the new room where where kind of Methodism began. So there's more than one voice in Christianity. And I think sometimes the louder voices can be the more extreme. And yeah. so I think the voice of Bristol Cathedral with a, a dean who's in a, part, a civil partnership with a woman, a woman dean in partnership with a woman it's a different voice and yeah i mean but i would say as a, as a there are different voices and there are different traditions but you know your stance on the trans community would would be considered quite radical within church of england circles surely i would think we're we, again the church of england's on a journey but as a as a general synod we've just voted in we're on a slow journey towards inclusion but we've just voted to, as a church to uh, uh, allow uh, the blessing of gay relationships in churches, which will be happening from this summer. 
for churches that want to do it. And I know that across this city and diocese, there will be people who will want to do it and people who won't. Yeah. And But we in the cathedral are looking forward to being able to welcome and bless people whose life and relationship we want to say is a positive example of the love of God. So, so yeah, would you so see your role in that in that sense, being in an institution, sort of nudging the envelope a bit, trying to trying to make the institution that you belong to more more inclusive, reach out to a wider range of people, perhaps to shed off some of the some of the more insidious things or beliefs or or attitudes that are still prevalent. You know, there are different. As I acknowledge, there are different colors, but they are still there. I, 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 you know. Yeah, they are still there, and I think. There, there's, it's more than me. There are quite a few inclusive, progressive voices within the church in this city, and yes, we have a we have some work to do. I'm a member of a group called Christians at Pride, and we we at the cathedral they flew the Pride flag. That wasn't completely well received by all Christians, yeah. but and then we we went and told people at Pride that God is for them and God loves love and love is love, and we had some very interesting conversations, but we're we're a small we're a small minority at the moment. Mm. But I think hope a small minority and, that will eventually become orthodox. You think? Uh, well, if we look at, I think the great thing about Bristol, one of the great things about Bristol is that we have some perspective on some issues. That if we look at, I I discovered that there were great tomes written about how the Bible backed up slavery that you could have found during the debate that was happening in this city a few centuries ago. And so I suspect in a few centuries, we may find ourselves looking back on our our institutional understanding of LGBT people, much like many of us will now look on the look back on how we, as a particularly as the Church of England, embraced and benefited from slavery. I think that might be the case. I'm not going to be yeah. here in two centuries to find out, but that's no, I think where no. we're going. But you're, obviously, you're you would be aware that and i think it's increased probably i think in the last definitely five years even probably 10 years thinking about it this kind of culture war where kind of there's been a kind of divisive attitudes towards social change which seems to polarize people and seems to be fed sometimes by politics and by media but also religion can play its role in that if you think about the you know think back across the pond particularly around trump you think my my partners from Brazil around Bolsonaro, that sure. culture wars and politics and social issues have kind of sort of merged. And is is that something that you feel quite frustrated by? Then being somebody that is, I guess, of a would you call yourself a social liberal? Or I don't know what you would do. Oh, you definitely, would no, definitely. Yeah. I, I would say I'm theologically orthodox, but socially liberal. Okay, so this this must be frustrating for you then, being part of something that presumably you know you, you live your life by it that's being used as a political weapon to yeah people absolutely with. and and i have good friends in the united states of america who are, are in the more socially liberal side of the church and it's even more the case there where many of many have seen the the church kind of captured by a political agenda but i think we have to have we have to recognize that we have a political agenda as church it's just trying to shape a political agenda for me, around the words, actions, and lifestyle of Jesus, which is perhaps a different political agenda from the one that some Christians seem to be exemplifying in places like both the United States and Brazil. 
What would Jesus think of it himself if Jesus was around today? Would he be a member of one of those one of those churches, or even would he be a member of the Church of England? I don't know. Gosh, I mean, <laughs> I, I want to speak on behalf. I I think th- when I look at the, the look at what Jesus said and who he prioritized in the hat, he would definitely want to remind all of us that that there's a there's a sense that we have to love those who we disagree with, and so not making enemies of anyone, not saying people whose political persuasion is different from mine, people who are at the moment implacably against the inclusion of LGBT people. They're not my enemies. And actually, in many cases, they're my family. They're my Christian family. And I'm called to love them and to seek their welfare, even if they don't want to seek the welfare of of people that I'm passionately committed to and who are part of my family. So and it's not I'm even. Fine. And the fundamental point is as well. It's not even really biblical, is it? I mean, you know, this, the amount of references to gay people, the amount of references to in, into the Bible, it's just minuscule. You know, it, it, it's very why, is it, why is it been lumped on as such a big, big thing? I don't understand. How did it get to this point? Well, gosh, I mean, I mean, there there are very few biblical references. We think that. I mean, they're about what they call. Some people call the clobber verses about seven areas of the Bible where where people can be clobbered with often misinterpretations of of bits of the Bible. And Jesus never said anything about gay relationships. He only ever mentioned sexuality in response to people talking about divorce. And we seem to be okay with allowing divorce. So, yeah, but it is, as you were saying earlier, I think it's something to do with social attitudes. It's something to do with change. It's something to do with all of those things that for some people, the church moving in this area is part of us moving into places and making statements that they feel uncomfortable with because they want the church to be a a place of certainty, a place of a morality perhaps that they don't see elsewhere. But it just doesn't seem to me to be much like the words of Jesus. That's the question. For me, it's and always... Do what, you have, what and do you have these challenging conversations with people that may have those perspectives or, or fixed oh, absolutely. views? Yeah. yeah, I mean that, that is. How do, uh, how do you approach them? How do you approach them to to challenge? Well, I would approach them, try to approach them as as people who are my family. This is my this is my faith family, and so I approach them with respect and an understanding that 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 I'm not going to tell them that they're not Christians because they they have more conservative views on certain issues than me. But that I want to. The other thing is, I want to introduce them to the stories of both faithful LGBTQ Christians, but also the stories of people who felt that their sexuality has led them to a poor mental health. When in some cases we have sad stories of young LGBT people in this country committing suicide because they felt that their sexuality dis- meant that they couldn't be part of the church. And that that is not acceptable. So I need to tell these stories I need to. Uh, there are to lots be- of. Sorry to jump in, Phil. There are, you know, and you would know that, you know, an awful lot of gay Christians. Exactly. Exactly that, and there, I mean, within the Church of England, there's been quite a long tradition of it. But again, we haven't quite known how to talk about it in a way that is acceptable. And so, there's part of part of it is a lot of people speaking up. A lot of the, there are quite a few LGBTQ people in the cathedral congregation and the cathedral community, and I hope and pray that we will, we will be able to be 
showing a different way of being a, a Christian community, which is more inclusive. But yeah, so often there is there are a lot of gay Christians who haven't always felt safe to be to be open about their sexuality within our churches, which is a an indictment on our churches, I think. Sure, and you know there are controversial things around conversion therapies. I mean, I, that's probably something more in the, the states than here. I've you know had experiences and connect with some parts of the of the, of the Christian faith, and I, I go and I stay with the monks down in Buckfast Lee, and I do my own little yep. thing, popping in out things. I'm off to the second Camino next week, so I'm someone that has that leans that way. But but I I don't feel like I can, I can always go in two footed because of this stuff. And actually, I find myself always having to have conversations with people of a spiritual inkling or people that feel they're looking for answers, that, that, that this stuff just shuts the door on them immediately. And I find it really hard to try and rationalise and convince around that. Yeah, we have we have a number of people in the cathedral community who are finding their way back to faith. And one of the things that has allowed them to feel like they might be able to do it with us is that it, we are known to be an inclusive and progressive congregation. And therefore... Yeah. They've often come from what they, there's quite a, a large community within this city of people who would describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. And then they've discovered that we offer prayer and beautiful music and place for contemplation completely free without pressure to convert them, but with a, an established spirituality, which has kind of seen the test of time. So we're, we're finding some people on, on that journey and that's, that's tremendously exciting. Because essentially to be, I mean, you, you could argue that in order to be religious, you have to be spiritual. Otherwise, yes. otherwise, it's just a kind of, you know, it's just regurgitating stuff you know, isn't it? If there's no yeah. sort of spiritual context to it. Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be some kind of relational aspect to it. And that relational aspect might be worship songs, as we talked about earlier, or it might be silence. It might be candles, or it might be, but there needs to be a relational aspect. But also, I was talking to somebody in the community in the cathedral yesterday because we had a, a little event with a thousand people in to sing for the king, which was great, singing Zadok the priest. And I was talking to three ladies from Western Supermare who don't who don't call themselves Christians, don't go to church, were in the in the cathedral because they were part of a singing group who'd come to be part of the event. And I said, "You, you do?" They were saying, "Oh, we really like this. It's got a really great feel," and you know. We miss, and I was talk, we're talking about the iftar that we might talk about later, that we were also involved in doing some hospitality for. And they said, "Oh yeah, we we white people we really miss community, don't we?" And and uh, and singing. I said, "You know what? There's there's quite a lot of places that do community and singing. They call churches. Ah, oh, but we're not sure what we believe about God." I said, y "You don't get asked on the way in. You can come and do community and singing, and then work out yeah. what you think about God. But that the deep need for community in a very yeah. lonely society." is is a real op opportunity for the church if people feel that the church might open its doors to them without without question let's talk a bit about politics the role that the church plays certainly yeah. Ch church of england 21 bishops are entitled seats in the unelected house of lords yep it's you know it's been tied into the the elite the establishment of this country which could feel incongruent perhaps with the, the essence of, of Christ, the essence of Jesus, maybe, you know. Yeah, I, I think uh, I hear what you're saying. And the good thing about having bishops in the House of Lords, if there is anything, is that they represent a church which is present in every community and does know what's going on, that is actively involved in things like 
the, the cost of living crisis. Even in this city, the obviously we've got these amazing welcome warm spaces that have sprung up across Bristol, over a yeah. hundred of them. And many, many of those will have, will be based in, in Ankin and other churches. We're not the only good people in the city, of course we're not, but there are lots of good things happening. And the, the, the House of Lords is a place where you have some people who know what's going on. You've got the Bishop of Chelmsford is a, an Iranian re, uh, refugee. You've got people who know what's going on and can speak out of that experience. So I think when they're doing that, then that's the Church of England at its best. When we're using our power to try and tell people how to live their lives in their in their own bedrooms, I think that's maybe not the Church of England that we need to be that proud of. And what about wealth and power? You know, <laughs> and, and land, you know, land ownership. And you know, there's an extortionate amount of land that's owned by by the church that people don't know and don't realise. That's another side to the church, isn't it? It's, it's an institution. It's a it's a it's a money making institution as well that, that has has a lot of wealth. Yeah, it's not money. It's a it's a charitable institution. That, money generating, then. Yeah, money generating. Yeah. Obviously, there are quite a lot of retired clergy, and you have to have a very big pension fund to pay for those for those. I, I, knowing a lot of retired clergy, it's not like we live as kings when we retire, but we do need to live. So there's there's a retirement fund, which obviously the, the Church of England pension fund is quite large, and we've got looking we're looking after as stewards some of the most extraordinary buildings across the nation, which costs us a lot of money too. And yes, there is land, and some of it is now we're thinking about using in terms of the housing crisis. And and other things. Yeah, the land ownership, land ownership, thirteenth in terms of UK land ownership leaderboard, thirteenth in the list yeah. of UK landowners is the church. Absolutely, yeah. and and so I think my understanding is that we have this money and power and prestige. If we have it, and some of it we definitely do have, it's what we do with it. Do we use it to serve those on the margins of society? Do we use that? Do we invest ethically? Do we make sure our pension fund is and we, we're not completely there, as many of my friends in Christian climate organisations will remind me. We're not there. Our pension fund isn't as ethical as it needs to be. But we have money. What do we do with it is the important thing. Just going to jump in there and tell you a bit about the Bristol Cable. It is a cooperative organisation and we're always looking for members. You can become one. Jump on to the Bristol Cable website and have a look and you can chuck anything in every month from a pound to a fiver to a tenner whatever you feel like contributing and what you'll get with that is a say in regular meetings and agms about the type of stories and the topics we cover not just for the newspaper but also online and you know even this show and potential documentaries anything really and um, you receive a, a weekly newsletter and you feel part of a community that's trying to shape and uh, change um, media ownership not just in Bristol, um, but across the country. Back to the chat. You mentioned the Iftar, the Grand Iftar on St. Mark's Road in Eastern, which is, you know, it's obviously a Muslim festival, but also it's a kind of multi-faith approach where people from all different faiths come together, different community groups and stuff. You're socially liberal yourself. But there, yep. are, there is an element to Christianity, which is there is only one way to God, and that's through Christ and the narrow gate and all that kind of stuff that actually would see anybody that was a Muslim, a Buddhist, a, a Hindu, a Christian, whatever, as like living in slightly false light and not following the true path. 
And that yeah. is biblical. That is biblical. And some people do. There is, you know, evangelists will take that word for word or certain types of, of, of more fundamentalist Christians would. Where where does that line go with that? Where, you know, where, uh, I'm not quite sure what question I'm trying to ask, but I, I, I think for me, that's another thing that is a bit of a blocker for some people coming into Christianity, that there is a sort so, of perceived arrogance a little bit that this is the, this is the only path, the only true path, yeah? Yeah. So I think that the most the fundamental thing about the iftar for us is that we are people of peace that jesus said that we are to love our neighbors and to be people of peace so whatever we think about people's theology and beliefs that that is a fundamental non-negotiable fact that we can open up our doors as a cathedral to welcome anyone in whatever they believe or don't believe and in terms of the islamic faith and the christian faith we have many things in common we have common roots and we both attest that there is only one god so there probably is only one and so i'm a convinced convinced committed christian and when asked by anybody of any other faith or no faith why i'll tell them but i'll leave that for them to decide whether the my understanding of god through christ is one that they would want to embrace and across the Church of England, in cathedrals, indeed not our own, but in certainly others, there are people from other faiths who are choosing to embrace the Christian faith, but they do it with complete openness of hand, and and it's not that we do things for you in order that you might convert. But I have if I thought Islam was a a better revelation of God, I'd be a Muslim. So I I understand my faith to be the... The, but you would um, say that's your experience, that's not the experience, or that's your truth, not the truth. Well, I, I think Jesus was the thing about Jesus, he's very slippery, but he was also he was he was about being incarnated truth. So he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But when you say mm. that, he was saying, Here's a real understanding of God. No, nobody else has the our father, you know, which is across Christianity, the, the Lord's Prayer. We're called asked to call God's Father. Now, my Muslim friends will say, well, of course you can't call God Father. Well, that's fine. So this is a different revelation of God. We have a different okay. understanding. What about the monotheistic faiths like Hinduism? And what's the word? Um, the- what's the word? Poly- polytheistic. Polytheist, yeah. So would you say that that's, that's false? I would say that there's, there's things in, in all of these faiths because there is a golden rule which runs through most faiths, which is about looking, looking after your neighbour, loving your neighbour perhaps, and loving God as you understand God. And so I'm anxious to find what we have in common, particularly, as you were saying, around a time of culture wars. Let's find out what we have in common. We can talk about what we disagree with, but let's get to be friends, show the, show the city and the world that we can be friends. But we, we, once we're good friends, we will get onto the things we but disagree But isn't that with. the problem with some elements of religion? And I don't think it's exclusive to Christianity. It's also with, with Islam, with Judaism. There are fundamental things in all of those faiths, which arguably has led to the conflicts between the Abrahamic faiths that we've seen yep. globally and historically, that there is a point where people don't shift from. Yeah, I agree. I, I would agree yeah. that there are some there are some, some fundamental theological differences. But for me, my understanding and the way I work with people of other faiths is from a theological perspective, because it's the theological it's the and my understanding of Jesus as someone who intensely showed that we must live and love people of difference so yeah. that that comes as a as a more important thing than than the differences we have in doctrine 
Sure. Yeah, I understand that. I understand. Um, so, and, so, okay. So, are all these human interpretations of, of God then, aren't they? They're human interpretations, they're cultural understandings. And, and, and in the broader spec, if there is one God or if there is one creator, yeah. then the, just different tributaries, different streams lead to the one sea. Does it, does it actually matter which path you take? As long as it gets you to the destination and 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 increases your connection to God, you know, so a lot of people are uncomfortable with the word God, but to your higher yeah. self, to the universe, however you want to define. Does it ultimately matter the language we use, the the people we worship, how we worship, all this stuff, which is essentially that we're all human beings and we're all matter, and we're all going to die, and we're all come and meet our maker. Well, I, I think it matters because different faiths say different things about the God that we seek to worship, and for me. there's something in Christianity about that God, that God came in a human form in Christ to show us uh, and to live out uh, a way of living which was so radically different that it got him crucified and to show a love for enemy that got him crucified and to to challenge people who were religious who thought that they had the answers and it got him crucified. So I think for me it's the person and example of Jesus that has captured me and i'll work i'll let working out how eternity works down to 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 the one jesus called father if somebody doesn't believe that and doesn't feel that that's okay that that's between them and god not me let's talk a bit about king charles he's going to be crowned on monday Monday? I, I'm I'm off. I'm I'm not he's here. Not, he's not being going to be crowned on Monday. I think you'll be a bit late if you're waiting for till Monday. I think he's being Which day crowned is it? on Saturday. Oh, it's Saturday. Okay, that shows my um, my, my interest. <laughs> he is the supreme head of the Church of England. What should, what yes. are your views? What are your views on the monarchy? And in 2023, do, do we still have to believe in a magic bloodline family? The second one, no, it's not magic. What my views on the monarchy? It is, isn't it? Isn't it a magic? Isn't it a sort of God? They're all descended from God, aren't they? The royals, isn't that? The no, theory? I don't. Think they, I don't. I don't think they they claim that. That's that's. I think you're confusing it with the uh, with the apostolic succession that's in, in the Catholic Church from St Peter. But anyway, so okay. what's my views on the monarchy? I think we, we'll have to see. How, I think our late Queen was an extraordinary example of a public servant. Yeah, and. We hope and pray that her son will continue that way of serving our nation in a way which shows humility. And I think also that his particular passion around the environment, which was considered back in the day to be a little bit quirky, is absolutely very important to have at the heart of our nation. And Are you a monarchist? Am I a monarchist? Yeah. I think you can't really be in. The, I have to swear allegiance. <laughs> you can't really. It's like being. That's like asking somebody in the army. You can't say you're not, can you? You have to swear allegiance to yeah, to, yeah. to to the to the, uh, <laughs> the monarch and their. Heirs Why would you have to? Let's be honest about it now. Let's be honest about it now. Jesus would not be a monarchist. I don't think. Well, Jesus was oh. Jesus was a king, so he didn't really need to be a monarchist. But yeah, yeah, but he would. would he, yeah. I think the kind of the, the you know the whole sort of the notion of of. Of a very exceptionally well, we talk about the wealth of the church, the wealth of the royal family, crikey, an exceptionally yeah. wealthy institution that is born off this, you know, we were appointed by God stuff. That is still sort of, I'm not saying everyone believes that, I know, but that's the origins of this stuff a bit. That that yeah. actually, the very notion of of somebody being born as something more superior than anybody else is purely, surely absurd, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't know. I've never, never met 
King Charles, but I don't think King Charles thinks he's better than anyone else. I think just think he has he's born to a role in our nation, which I, we hope. It's not his fault. I'm not blaming him. Not even blaming the Queen. It's just the, the the actual idea, the concept. I don't. You know, there's yeah. a reason why most countries have got rid of them, isn't there? So I would be. I think one of the things that people don't understand is that the links between the state and the church and the monarchy. If we try to dis- disestablish the church and or get rid of the monarchy, the the constitutional upheaval and the parliamentary time, when I think that looking at the nation that we live in at the moment, that parliamentary time probably could be better served by making sure that people have enough money in their benefits to be able to pay that for their food. Mm. So I would be a kind of a bit of a an, a realist that says, well, let's slim down the monarchy, let's slim down the church, the church's influence, but trying to get rid of it because of the way that our constitution has grown up would take an awful if lot I of time. If I suddenly said to you, all right, okay, I'll reframe the question. If I suddenly said to you, right, I've got an idea, we're going to give this family a gold crown, loads of money, loads of land, and we're going to spend, you know, billions of pounds on, you know, a massive thing of, of making them a title in the middle of a cost of living crisis and the work that you yeah. do in areas of deprivation where people can't even afford to put bread on the table. What, what would you yeah. say? Well, I would say, we're, like the Irish, we don't start from here. You know, it's like, you know, we don't start afresh. If we started afresh, of course we wouldn't do it. But mm. we are where we are. I guess that leads to the question of whether, is it the, is it the Church of the Elite then? I mean, you know, I think, what, what's the Archbishop? He's an Exetonian, isn't he? Cambridge-educated, yep. former oil industry executive, Justin Welby. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's the, this stuff doesn't feel particularly sort of humble, sort of Christ-like, you know, hanging around with prostitutes and, and you know, robbers and the poor. And it feels sort of slightly incongruent with that to me. It is, it is slightly incongruent with that. But Justin... The Archbishop has also got a story of, you know, a daughter who's struggling with mental health. He's, he's so they had suicide in his own family. So, again, there's not just one story of from even the leaders of our church. But the, mm-hmm. the thing that the reason I'm in the Church of England is because we have a presence in every community. We, we are often in places where other church and other institutions have left. And we are committed to, and thankfully in this diocese, we have a bishop who is very committed to making sure that our presence in those communities is uh, put money into. Because every time you put a vicar into a parish that doesn't pay enough money into the central coffers to to afford its vicar, yeah. then that is that is us making... But how does that shift power, though, though Phil? That, that kind of is very, you know, and I come from that world as well, the, you know, the community community work which is, does a lot of good sort of grassroots stuff on the ground but it doesn't shift power does it It doesn't shift institutions it doesn't sort of move to a more fairer society where surely we need some kind of radical change to really <laughs> change people's lives we do we do need to change to change people's lives but the church of england by its nature changes slowly but we are a community that is committed to spending more of its money in places that wouldn't be economically sensible, but would be sensible because of the priorities of Christ, mm. than many other many other institutions. We're not perfect, uh, and we we you know we have we have our own issues in lots of areas. But our commitment to the to the poorest people in the nation, I think, is is pretty uh, pretty um, unrivaled, really. I just wonder whether there is an argument to say if you're embedded with arguably institutions that maintain the status quo, that maintain inequality, 
That's yep. just kind of a little bit of window dressing. At Bristol Cathedral itself, you know, we have our local version of the elites here, the Merchant Venturers, that hold an annual service at the cathedral every year with the Colston Bun stuff, which sort of quite, quite famously a journalist kind of went in and recorded. Am I right in thinking that the cathedral did remove a stained glass window of Colston or something like that? Have I got that so right? I, th- I think really everybody needs to come into the cathedral and see what we're doing in terms of what, uh, yeah. our, our exhibition called All God's People, which is looking very seriously at the whole issue around the enslavement of Africans and where we got the money, et cetera, et cetera. So the Colston, the Colston window has not been removed, but the references to Colston in it have been, and it's now being explained. And I think the cathedral's attitude is that we need to explain history, not try and erase it, yeah. but be very honest about the fact that we are deeply ashamed of what happened. We recognise the historical context and that for many people it was a respectful trade, but it, it's not in any way acceptable to the way that we see our understanding of God in the 21st century. Has that momentum increased since the statue came down, though? I, I think that momentum has increased with the with Black Lives Matter, with mm. the statue coming down. It's also increased with the present dean, Mandy Ford, who hasn't been with us that long who has made that a priority in... Why why is it needed that to happen for people to realise that the slave trade was a bad thing? I think there was a culture of... So my my working class Methodist parents Mm. just would never talk about it. So both born in Bristol, both brought up in the Bristol kind of education system. Mum went to Colston Grammar School and got said Colston Bun in the cathedral. I don't think we give them out anymore. Anyway... But um, yeah, so there there was almost a culture of being embarrassed, kind of if we don't talk about, don't talk about the war, don't talk about it, and we'll we'll pretend it never happened. We, yeah, but you were uh, talking about it. You were having a ceremony about it every year, so it wasn't, yeah. wasn't that, that's different. So it was talked about. It was celebrated in in the cathedral. Col- Colston was Colston was celebrated as a philanthropist, not not as a slave trader. But yeah. <laughs> well, I think yeah. the denial people were denying that he was, or kind of were, yeah. were kind of pushing back how much of a role that he had. Or perhaps distorting history. Anyway, so I was in 2000 and whatever that was, 2007, I preached a yeah. sermon in my little church in Eastern called Is Racism Bristol's Original Sin? So I, I, I'm yeah. pretty clear where I've, where I've stood on so this. So your today. personal position is, yeah. So you've, I mean, you've obviously been brought in to create those pathways and those relationships. I don't think the Bristol Cathedral are just guilty of it. I think a number of institutions in the city post, as you say, Black Lives Matter, post Colson coming down, have suddenly pivoted and quickly shifted their position. So you have to forgive some people like, you know, the Radical History Group, countering Colson, people that have been on this trail for a long, long time, suddenly being a bit cynical and a bit sceptical about this sudden new position. Yeah, and, and so we've got a wonderful exhibition, but then we are committed to an ongoing conversation with with Black, with, with black and minority ethnic people in Bristol as to how we follow up our contrition and our recognition with real action and real action will probably involve money and investment and okay. and time i mean you've tweeted yourself about reparations yep. but that's something that would you like to see organizations that have benefited from the trade and bristol's obviously prevalent to that with you know second outside liverpool second biggest city mm-hmm. in the country um, the benefit from the slave trade you'd like to see some movement towards reparations yeah. personally because i'm not speaking on behalf of yeah yeah for sure yeah i i think reparations are the only way to show that we're really serious i think what we what we value we pay for or pay you know i think there is a real yeah. sense that reparations would show 
the seriousness of our commitment. And the Church of England nationally has put aside £100 million to look at reparations, so it clearly is serious. So, yeah, we'll have to find out what happens in, in Bristol and how we do that. Yeah. But we'll have to do that in conversation with and consultation with people rather than trying to do it on behalf of people, which we often have. Yeah. We're a community of communities. There are many communities, but we have to try and work out how we can bond ourselves together. But also, you know, recognise the wonderful things about Bristol and the terrible things. I always talk about, you've seen me in tweets, I talk about our beautiful and broken city. It is beautiful, but mm. it's also broken. But as a city, we need to have a, a grown-up debate which says that it is, I think, a fine place to live, but for yeah. many people, it's a very difficult place to live. There are a lot of more honest conversations about the city's past and the role that you know institutions still still play in the city. I made a documentary for Radio Four on the Merchant Ventures, and, and you did. I heard you heard it. Okay, right. Yeah, for yeah. journalists in London, were just utterly bemused at what you've got an organisation that's still called that's connected for five hundred years ago. How's that led to happen? I think how is that still happening now? And I think that. They are here, they have money, you know, you can debate whether they should still exist or not or even rebrand or rename, but it's how you kind of work with those organisations. I know St. Exactly Paul's Carnivore are doing stuff and that, and, that, you know, and, and Latoya McAllister, the, the um, CA, says to me, well, it's our money, so it's not going to work with them and try and get the money back. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, there's some, some degree of truth in that, but I also think that the key point is, and I guess this, this would be the Christ or the Jesus stance, yeah, is... There are also people that are here and maybe by just pushing them to the sidelines and ignoring that, that that's also not helpful. I don't know. Do you no, know what I, th- mean? I, I think yeah. that, that to anathematize anyone yeah. is unhelpful. You can yeah. anathematize people's views sometimes. What does, what does anathematize mean? Sorry. So a big word, kind of yeah. say that they're completely beyond this beyond the pale and we don't we don't we don't work with them. You need to try and make to keep as many people in the conversation and and it, as possible. And to say, if you're involved with merchant ventures, we won't have anything to do with you, is is an easy thing to say. And it makes some people, some places in the political spectrum in the city feel feel quite good. But yeah. actually, these are human beings, and as you say, they are here. They have money. So let's not do that. Let's actually engage with them and see what we can do in terms of getting that money spend in a way which, which reflects the priorities that they should have. And that's the sort of one side of the challenge with how Bristol sees itself and how Bristol sort of comes to terms and that, but also what the future Bristol is. But also the flip side to that, it's a bit like you said about your, your parents, is, you know, when you're working in families in Noel West and in Hartcliffe, and I, you know, I'm sure you have, I've had conversations around the post-Colston world and, and, and they were quite angry about that and they felt that actually that their Bristol's changing and this yeah. was a, this is a raising history and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, I, I would challenge, but also we need to gradually bring those people into understanding a bit more, not push them to the sidelines as well. Exactly. Without sounding too cheesy or without sounding a little bit too sort of combaya about it, that is in essence that non-judgmental, compassionate support and listening and having a conversation with people that are different than yourself is, is very what Jesus w- was like. Indeed. Yep, absolutely. That's exactly that. And I think those ethics are what we're trying to live out in the cathedral and recognising our privilege, recognising the history and trying to be that bridge place, if you like, between the place of privilege and power and the place of exclusion and powerlessness. And that's what we're trying to do in our little way. 
thank you ever so much for for coming on and being really candid and, and being really honest with this conversation. It's been great. I mean, it's been something that I've been, you know, thinking about from listening to the podcast and being around the city for a while. And so it's been a wonderful opportunity. All the best, Phil. Take care. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Reverend Phil Knott for joining us today on Bristol Unpacked. And we will be back next week, as ever, with another great guest and a fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>